Indigenous peoples get real about what's on our screens and everything in between. I'm Matt Bars, and with me, bringing their thoughts, feelings, and other critical minds are... History in Hawaii, this is Noetta Harjo. Maduwika, this is Sunrise. Uvala Luita, Kubanga Angela. Monica. Hey, everyone. Lucio in Hawaii, this is Candice. Halito, Chimichukma, this is Tully. Halito, Theo, this is Dwayne Hornbuckle. Joining you from Choctaw Nation country. Thanks for joining us this week. Uh, we are all excited to talk about the new Disney Plus slash Hulu series, Echo. We're here to talk about the first two episodes of, of the series. Does someone have a synopsis of episode one, Noetta? Yeah, so in episode one, we kind of go back in time and learn a little bit more about Maya Lopez played by Alonco Clock, showing, you know, where she, when she was a young child and the accident that not only took her mother's life, but also took her leg. Shortly after that, her and her father moved to New York where he starts working for Wilson Fisk. This episode kind of goes into a little bit about what happened in the series Hawkeye. Basically, Hawkeye, when he was Ronin, and during the blip, he became this person, Ronan. He was out for vengeance because his family was gone and he was in a very dark place. During that time, he kills Maya's father, William. And so she goes into a dark place as well and, and wants to uh, avenge her father's death by killing Ronan. Um, and, and at the end of the Hawkeye series, uh, Clint Barton tells her that they are the same and that their, their pain is being manipulated by Fisk. Uh, and he also reveals that Fisk is the one who uh, sent him to kill her father. So her revenge target goes from Clint Barton to Fisk. And at the end of Hawkeye, she shoots him. You don't know if he's alive or dead. You just hear a gunshot at the end of the series. The first episode kind of goes into that very, very briefly, very, very quickly. But it establishes the relationship between Fisk and Maya. And... Um, then five months after that happened, Maya heads home to Oklahoma, uh, where she's basically going to start a war with, with Fisk's people. As far as Maya's concerned, uh, Fisk is dead, and she's ready to take over. Uh, she goes to her childhood home, which is exactly the same. Nothing has changed. And uh, her cousin, Biscuits, played by Cody Lightning, uh, discovers her there. After the interaction with Biscuit, she goes to visit her uncle Henry and asks him for access to the shipping yard that is owned by Fisk there in Oklahoma. And he decides he's not going to help her because he doesn't want to bring any trouble to town. And she basically says, if you're not with me, you're against me. That's episode one. Each episode uh, introduces a different character from the past. In episode one, um, it is the first Choctaw. Her name is Chaka. And then in episode two, we meet Lowak, who is a very skilled, very physical uh, stickball player. Stickball is a traditional uh, game of the Southeastern tribes, including the Choctaw people. But in this uh, episode, the stickball game is kind of a way to dispute her fears and to win the game. 
we pick up with Maya um, and she basically is enlisting the co- her cousin Biscuits to helping her procure some supplies. At the same time, her grandmother finds out that she is in town and she's a little bit worried because she knows that Biscuits is already involved with her and he's quite an impressionable person. Maya is exacting a, a plan where, and she's looking in particular for a car, a train car, D9X. She has to jump from train car to train car to find it, but it's heavily guarded. So she has to climb under the train to get up inside the, the car to get into the cargo that she's looking for. The next scene, she gets out of the train car and then jumps back to the end of the train. Uh, there's one scene where her prosthetic leg gets caught in between the connecting uh, levers and stuff of the train and it gets smashed. Uh, she's able to walk and eventually does this amazing jump off of the train onto Biscuit's truck and gets away without being caught. It turns out that that train car is um, carrying weapons that goes to Fisk's armory. And when it arrives at the armory and they open it, it explodes. Uh, there are two people that we know survived that explosion. And one of them, his name is Zane. He works for Fisk. The day after, Henry gets a call saying that uh, there was an explosion. And he knows it's Maya, but he has to cover his tracks so that nobody comes for him. And whenever he goes to talk to Maya about it, she reveals that she's looking to take over for Fisk and that she basically has a strategy and she has the power to, to say when the, the war starts and when it stops. And all, all Henry hears is this. So he is uh, determined to clean up her mess and get her out of town before any trouble can come. But in the whole mix of everything that's going on, uh, Maya's cousin, Bonnie, who she was really close to as a child, finds out she's in town. And that was the one thing that Maya didn't want. And then how does it end? It ends with a text from Bonnie. And uh, Maya gets very frustrated that she she pulled out a gun and starts shooting at uh, the swing set in her yard. And during while she's shooting, she starts seeing flashes of faces of her, of Chatha, of Lowak, and then of another uh, girl who we don't meet until episode three, somebody with a gun. So the first episode was direct. The first and second episode were directed by Sydney Freeland, right? Right. Yes. And Stephen Paul Judd was on the writing team for both one and two, and then Bobby Wilson and Rebecca Runhorse were on the writing team for episode two. So I I thought it was interesting that the first episode spent twenty minutes, kind of taking us on that journey back through Maya's story and the Choctaw origin story, right? Right. I think it starts with Choctaw origin story and then goes into the in, like the diegetic retelling of Maya's story, almost verbatim with like the footage um, from Hawkeye, with the exception of a few shots that kind of change perspective. So with episode one, I, the first, like in the very beginning, I'm just going to start from there. The first thing that, that it kind of took me out of it for just a minute because I turned on the show I hit play and I see these cave people and I immediately stopped it because I thought am I on the right show because I was I wasn't expecting that because it's a Marvel uh, series and I, I went back Eternals 
Like, yeah, I was like, are the I, Eternals in this? Am I on the right oh, I know. Yeah, the glowing water thing. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know. I, I wasn't expecting that at all. So I, and I went back. I went back through Echo and turned it back on, and there it was again. I was like, okay, I am on the right show. But I thought it was interesting. So. But I, I didn't know their origin story at all. I knew exactly what was happening. <laughs> But that's because I watched a play about that takes place in that that realm. And so the minute I saw it, I was like, origin story, creation story. I know exactly what this is, even though I'm not Choctaw. Yeah, I think the fact that they looked like mud to me, I was like, oh, this is we, we went all the way back to the beginning, um, sort of. I mean, it's like Choctaw beginning. It, it was interesting to learn that it's like the fourth or fifth tribe to come out of this space. Yeah. I, I agree with, uh, I mean, with Candace. I mean, as soon as I got a sense of like the texture of the space, like both the actual space and then the actual like material on their faces, I thought that was pretty cool to just throw us into that, that location and time. And I think having just watched Kohori and coming off an archaeological, archaeology conference, all of that, I was just like, I was primed for it. And I was like, yes, this is where we are. <laughs> <laughs> there was one aspect, uh, one part of it that was very interesting to me. And that was the addition of a woodpecker as a messenger. That was very interesting to me. Candace looks very happy about this. Yeah, we see the woodpecker and um, just before the cave collapses in on, on, um, Chapa and her people, uh, almost as a warning that something's about to happen. So that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Dwayne, do you, uh, do you have any insights on the woodpecker and what that signified and everything within the Choctaw culture? Uh, yes, the Bishkanik uh, woodpecker in Choctaw um, was a messenger uh, because when you're in the woods and you hear the woodpecker pecking on the trees. He's sending, uh, you know, message to to other animals. And in fact, our Choctaw newspaper is called the Bishkanik. So, um, yeah, I was I was glad to see that in there because that's that's little parts of like the oral history and stuff that could easily be left out because it's oh, it's just a bird. Um, so I was glad to see them uh, show that uh, significance. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's in the first episode three times. It's it's in the cave, and then when uh, Chaffa's walking on um, land in our reality, uh, it's there again. But then it's again later when um, there's driving, and Tantu looks out the truck, um, and then we see it on like a a pole, right at the uh, at the yeah because. Because Graham Greene says, are the ancestors talking to you? And that's when everything changes. And so when I was a kid, they called it Bishanik. And now it's called Biskanik. I don't know why that changed. Do you know the way by any chance? Um, no, I don't know. Um, but I know there's a lot of words between uh, Mississippi and Oklahoma that are are spoken different. And then also in Mississippi from community to community, some words are pronounced different. Um, so I don't know, just being the the time and the distance um, that changed um, or just a dialect of, of region. And also like with the, that origin story, we don't really have a story of that, that singular person, Chuffa. And so I don't know if that was just for the Marvel story or or not i think uh, mark kind of talked about that in a previous uh, our interview so like i don't know if there was a chuff but there may be i don't know and so 
with the two titles of the shows, there's Chaffa, C-H-A-F-A, and Lowak, which is L-O-W-A-K, I think they spell it. And so I didn't know these words. I was like, I don't understand what these words are. And so I was asking my mom, and she says, it's a Chaffa, and it's spelled differently, like A-C-H with the Choctaw A-F-F-A. So you say a Chaffa. And then Luwak is L-U-A-K is how it's normally spelled. Luwak means fire and Achapa means like one. Yeah, so th- that that was different. And what I understood is that when they were doing the transcript, the uh, teaching the, the non-Choctaw speakers, they were doing it phonetically. And so our feeling is that Marvel just took the spelling and put it in their titles as opposed to doing it as you know as we understand it as our traditional way of of writing but like Dwayne says there's variations of these spellings there are variations of languages maybe there is another part of our tribe that uses those words but from me as a broken bill Choctaw I didn't know what those I didn't understand what those words were I thought it was funny to hear the Canadian actors speak Choctaw because they <laughs> definitely have an accent yeah definitely there's an accent and there's a demeanor because they don't sound like all the Choctaw people I know around here at all yeah and it's expected I mean like I kind of like was forgiving of how they mispronounce words and things like that like uh like they said you know he he said Tushka instead of Tushka and but there's one time that I kind of got I said they should have made them say it correctly was when they were making fun of those uh, those white folks because they say Yalko K and they started making fun of him and he's supposed to say no holo, but he says no holo. And I said, like, you're doing it just the same as the white people. <laughs> <laughs> just one of the things that really struck me in this whole series is there's there's actually very little dialogue. But then I started thinking about it. And as a deaf person, she doesn't live in a world with a lot of dialogue, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought that Sydney used a really great balance between dialogue silence and noise in telling her story and experiencing different scenes as you would with if you were her or as somebody interacting with her so I thought that was really well done I think that not knowing what uh, not knowing a lot of ASL I know the alphabet that's about it um it was really interesting to me how well it looked, all these actors, you know, all of the time they put into it, you could tell they put a lot of time into learning the ASL. That's what I thought too. And um, this guy that I'm dating, his son is deaf. So I made him watch some of it. Cause I was like, I found the one deaf person in my life. Just like somebody goes and finds the one native. And I'm like, is this accurate? And was it? Yeah. He said his son watched it. And he's in, he usually, when he watches stuff, he makes fun of it because it's not. And um, they got a, a ringing endorsement. It is interesting just comparing it to uh, Hawkeye. Haw- this character's in Hawkeye. There are sequences of ASL in Hawkeye. They're very brief and not as pronounced, maybe, because there are the characters. There's a different kind of scoring that's going on. Uh, this, you really do hear the environment. And it, sometimes it feels like it's like a... You know, like when you watch a movie go through its stages of making, there's definitely this period where you add all the sound effects 
and like the sound department will take away the dialogue so you can just hear what the environment sounds like and just like the movement of like footsteps and clothing and it's interesting how it really pronunciated that particular those elements of sound design because those are very present but but where it kind of goes even further than like hawkeye is that um because I'm, I'm sure those things are there just underneath the score but in this one, we kind of hear a little bit more, but we also uh, get a sense of the performance. Like there's vocalization, right? You definitely hear breathing and, and some wording. It's not like the character's completely mute in that they don't make any sound mm -hmm. with their mouth and definitely with like the hands. And it felt like that was a very clear um, attribute of her character and felt very real uh, compared to what I've seen. Um, where there's moments where we actually hear the words come out in a in a form of breath, um, I thought that was very cool, um, and that felt accurate to me. But you know, I'm not I'm not ASL proficient. Um, that's the regular film, I guess. Like the regular like settings, I did watch the second episode in ASL. So like, if you go through the settings, you can select the the ASL audio track. And very descriptive. In fact, I learned a lot of things. I learned that, you know, the Cherokees were the tribe in the stickball game, which I didn't know going in, um, just watching it without that for the first viewing. Um, but very vocal. And um, and it's also um, Maya's dialogue is translated into uh, vocalization. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. It's very descriptive and it's interesting what, what is described versus what isn't. Um, but it would definitely like seem like it was the one of the tracks that was adding a lot of information in a way that I hadn't heard from another film or another series, which I do hear ASL on. It felt like it was more descriptive. So I felt like they definitely put a lot of work um, into that in the same way that they're putting work into the uh, the first episode's release of uh, Choctaw track. So I thought that was very cool in terms of the accommodation. So clearly they're putting a lot of work in these areas. I mean, they have to be the, the, the lead actress is deaf, which I did not realize yeah. <laughs> until after yeah. I did, and did some research and I was like, Oh, okay. This is fantastic. Yeah. And I was thinking, I don't ever, ever want to hear from Hollywood again, where they're like, well, no, we had to get this other person to play somebody because there's nobody out there and no quiet yeah. yeah she's deaf and she's also native so you know it, it yeah. they found everything that fit within the character and where's the prosthetic yeah like everything yeah. as a prosthetic right does well, she really yeah yeah she's very authentic so she is the real <laughs> echo. mind is blown real life. I, just, I don't want to hear it hollywood i don't want to hear it because, I mean, they found the perfect person. Yeah, absolutely. I read somewhere that it, it was her niece who plays her as, as a kid. Oh, I wondered, because they look so much alike. Yeah, I heard that, too. Because that little girl is so, so perfect. Yeah, that little girl does an amazing job as Maya throughout the series. Well, this is, this is cool because in the comics, the character um, reads lips, and she actually speaks. So they could have taken that easy way out and, or, I mean, hired someone who wasn't deaf or hired someone or had kind of just done away with the ASL 
Um, it makes sense in the comics for her to speak. I because if yeah, I guess doing sign in comics is I guess is difficult, but it really really works well for the series for the character and for the series in, in the MCU. Yeah, she does a little bit of signing in the comics. Does she? Yeah, and um, but it's not like you know, of course, they're not going to go everything because they also did it when the Hawkeye lost his hearing. They would show like the sign mm-hmm. of the little hands. Each panel would have little hands doing the signing, and. The other thing about in the comics was that she's Cheyenne, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Originally with Cheyenne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she, what she did, she mimics other people's technique. Yeah, she would, she would, uh, technique, she'd watch uh, Jackie Chan movies. Um, she, uh, she was proficient at playing the piano just from watching people, or just from watching them. That was like a big part of the, of the character in, um, in the comics. And what I read from an interview with Sydney Freeland that she didn't want to do that because uh, she didn't she wanted it to be the whatever the other power is going to be as we'll talk about in the future she wanted it to be that instead of this where she mimics because she wasn't she didn't think that was a good thing. And there's also a character that also does it called the Taskmaster Master who was in mm-hmm. the Captain America movie and so they didn't and I'm assuming Marvel probably didn't want to do a repeat of the same kind of superhero mess. And I know people are comparing her to Iron Fist because of glowing hands and stuff. And yeah. everybody disliked Iron Fist. So they might think they're, she's trying to, they're trying to replace her with Iron Fist. But there's parts when she's fighting, um, when she joins this group and she's fighting, where she's kind of watching. And, and I know that they, they set it up, you know, where she takes martial arts as a child. She's in the boxing ring with, uh, you know, bigger guys than her, and she can hold her own. But there's, you can see her watching people and how they fight. Yeah, and it might still be there. They're just not actually focusing on it and talking about it. And I, I don't mind that. I think that's kind of a cool thing because it, it could just even say that you know she's, she's so adept in her fighting and her technique and skill that she knows pretty much every technique there is that she can figure out people out. And speaking of fighting, um. She goes toe to toe with Daredevil for about what, what two minutes, and that's oh all we gosh. see. That was it was so great. It, it was, was it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing when she does that pirouette and then bangs him with her foot. I was like, <laughs> yes, yes. The thing the thing that gets me though is that I, I've been reading, and then I shouldn't read um, what you know fanboys say or any some of these predictions in uh, uh, articles. But they were predicting, you know, Charlie Cox was going to be a part of a big part of this series, and he was in there for two minutes. But he made a pretty good impact. But at the same time, he he was almost forgettable too, because Maya was like just just as good as he was when it came to the the, the fight scene and everything. Well, I was just going to say that was a really impressive moment, not just like narratively, but also just in terms of uh, the casting and. Uh... Alakwa is able to achieve exactly what Echo needs to achieve, and we see it all essentially in one long take. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a couple of things that they've, you know, removed in terms of wires, like just moment she slides very far. Um, uh, but it seems like a lot of the choreography was really based on her ability to perfect it and to get it all in essentially two what seemed like two shots, long durational really complicated choreography like jumping through like the, the the racks and then moving with objects and then shifting her weight and and then um working in terms of the timing so it all makes some sense 
like that was all really impressive uh, and made me believe um, that this character could achieve whatever she's going to need to achieve. That was really amazing. Yeah, I thought about I thought about Candace when I was watching that because I think what were we talking about about how you get lost in some fight scenes. Oh yeah, the editing on the fight scene that I, is oh, always, but this it yeah was so, was so clear. Clean. Yes, I I made that comment to Roy too when we were watching it. I was like, I love the way this is edited. This you can see the ferocity, her ferocity, because I haven't seen the the Daredevil that's on Netflix, but I will watch it. I will watch it. And one thing that Roy said is he really loves continuous long takes, something that you can't you can't see where that editing is. And I asked him, does this feel like the fighting in Daredevil? And he said, yes, it's very reminiscent of what it was like in the Daredevil show. And I said, I love these 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 beautiful fight scenes are just so well done they're not doing that that annoying thing that they did black widow wrong you know every hit every impact and hits cut hit cut hit cut hit cut i have no idea who's hitting what so anyway but this opposite loved it longer shots bigger you know wider angle i can see the two people in the shot so i know who's hitting who i know what is being hit i understand why you get thrown to the ground i understand so very very well done i'm Really, really loved the choreography, the fight choreography in this. And I had a lot of personal satisfaction when she killed her first guy. Yeah, yeah, that was great. It was so, I mean, you could feel her release and I was just like, oh, yeah, there's, I get it. Yeah, and there's something really interesting going on there with like the sound design where it's like, yeah, she pulls him forward, like all the other sound goes away and we hear two heartbeats mm-hmm. until she snaps the guy's I don't know anatomy or neck or whatever neck. and uh and then it's only hers yeah yeah it was so cool it is cool yeah and her clothes are cool she is cool i she want her cool. jacket i want all of her gear <laughs> yeah it definitely feels like all this long uh durational takes the choreography the way in which it's shot it feels like it's sort of not only aligning with Daredevil, but it feels like it's also like communicating to an audience that's like in this um, post-John Wick era now. Like we've had several John Wicks since Daredevil's been around. And it feels like uh, this is also a space where we have a lot of indigenous people working on set in terms of like um, choreography and stunt work, right? We just talked to Jen Raider. But it feels like this is, um, you know, an opportunity for us to have another genre available to us uh, that, you know, in the same way that I feel like Res Dogs was like a demo for like we could have like this uh, pot stoner 70s movie. We can also now very clearly have, you know, an action star, number one, but also like we can compete with John Wick. Um, I thought that was really awesome, even though it was so brief. <laughs> It felt like it was like the only sequence that really kind of plays out in that way. And I feel like just to compare it with another action sequence in the second episode, which is which is the um, the stickball sequence. Um, I feel like the stickball sequence has similar elements. I mean, there's choreography. Uh, there's a, a woman. Uh, there's a stunt woman. Um, there's uh, various elements of, uh, I don't know, objects and uh, goals. And I, I was actually kind of confused spatially in the uh, stickball sequence and just hearing how it like maybe was shot in and clearly when you watch it, there's a lot more shots. It's a lot more focused maybe on reactions in the crowd than it is on the choreograph 
um, gameplay, but that's an area where I got like logistically confused. I kind of was uncertain where the poll was, uh, who was winning at what point, what skills were being utilized. And I'm not sure uh, where that happened because, and it's interesting to learn that it was, you know, they shot for like a week um, with the amount of extras. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but that's an interesting circumstance where like the same director, same team, basically, and, you know, it makes me wonder about like rehearsal and uh, blocking. And it makes me wonder if they had shot the whole thing in a single take more complicated. Maybe they could have done it in a week, but I feel like I would have been more clear, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I was a little unclear in that game. I, I would agree. There were times in that scene specifically where I was confused spatially, but I also find that to be true when I'm actually in a stick ball game. And that's why I don't play it very often. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm directionally challenged, but I, I will say like, I, what I liked, cause I've also seen stick ball on stage and it just, it looked like a mess, you know, and it was hard to communicate that there is strategy, there's strategy involved, you know, and that, the way it's usually played is man on man and or you know person on person and the way choctaws play i know is um of the lady the the women use the sticks and we're and i know this is chair it's a cherokee versus choctaw stick ball game and so um yeah i was a little bit confused uh spatially of where we were but i i i could see that there were there was there was teamwork and that there was like um i could see that there was strategy being employed but I and I don't know um, about I I don't know exactly what led to my confusion. I'd have to watch it again just to see what's going on. But um, I will say I join you in that boat too, Sunrise, of being a little spatially confused in that moment. But maybe that's also just the nature of the game too. Yeah, it could be. I mean, you bring up a really good point as somebody who's played. Like I've never played, but the fact that you are confused in the middle of it, and we are really identifying. Um, with low walk in that first sequence so it makes sense that if if i'm spatially confused it does have maybe a, a story grounding or allows me to identify with the character um because i felt like everything else was working really well like the, the wardrobe was believing the environment the number of people uh the fact how they were playing outside of maybe where physically I, all that stuff i was believing and it seemed great maybe Dwayne can touch on that because he, he was there, yeah. So, you know, Dwayne, can you give some insight? And I understand what you're saying. And I think it's different from, um, you know, in a in a normal, say, a football game when the two teams are, are different color jerseys, the fans are wearing the team's color. So it was kind of, uh, to somebody who hadn't seen it a lot, maybe hard to tell, you know, who's cheering for what. Um, I, I don't know that they had time to put in more back history of what the game was. Certain parts of it were definitely choreographed where they have to, uh, when she scores the goal, when uh, she kind of steps on someone's back and they kind of hurl her through the post. And then there were also some that we were um, choreographed that weren't used. Um, and again, that goes with keeping the storyline kind of secret until it comes out. How many were stunt people and how many were like, you know, our, our players? Because you mentioned there were some extras who were like, not stickball players were those some of those the stunt people or do you remember how that breakdown was doing off the top of my head i think they had about 10 stunt 
men and women um, on set. And then we had about uh, 12 to 15 actual stickball players out there playing. And then there also were some some extras dressed as stickball players that were just on the sidelines and kind of in the backgrounds of shots. This one especially was uh, very inclusive of people with disabilities. And there was, a, there was a guy that was blind. He was a stickball player. And um, through the whole first day of shooting, I didn't know he was blind until we go on a break and then he gets his cane out. And I was like, oh, okay. That's why he's not in the scene. I'm curious as to whether or not they're going to like do some throwback jerseys at the modern stickball games wearing what they wore in the second episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that scene kind of confused me because it says Alabama. And what what was it again? 200 AD or whatever. 1200. 1200. Oh, my bad. What year is that in reality? 1200. And so when it said Alabama, you know, it had a big Alabama 1200 AD or whatever. I thought they were saying that it was an Alabama tribe. And I didn't know that kind of is what threw me off because I'm like, oh, because there's no Alabama right. at that time period, right? There's no Alabama there at that not. time. Right. Yeah. But so you that, know, that's. You remember when Loki said that they were in Oklahoma? Yeah, Brack. And everybody everybody got online and was like, uh, Indian Territory. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, real Indian Territory. But no, I think, would it have been, correct me if I'm wrong, would it have been Moundville or maybe a smaller mound in Alabama? Yes, very likely. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. just got super thrilled when I saw Mound. I, think, I was like, yeah, Mound. Yeah, and Dwayne. I think that's what Dwayne said. When was the gathering? Do you remember when that gathering of tribes was at Moundville? Was it around that time? I'm fuzzy on Moundville, but I was like, it's got to be Moundville because it's Alabama or Alabama. Because there was a big gathering of our tribes. And I want to say it was in 2000, not 2000, but around that time, 1200, whatever. See, I can't do that fucking AD. Yeah, 2000 was 20 <laughs> yeah. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like a thousand years ago. <laughs> 1000. Yeah. And I think it was left. Um, a little vague because there was uh, the whole Mississippian culture of mound people um, mm-hmm. stretched from, you know, what's now Mexico into um, northern United States, southern Canada. Um, so it it very well could have been. Um, I think they took some some facts um, kind of mirrored it after Moundville without saying this is Moundville. Although it was cool that it started with like a big mound, right? Like when Alabama occurred, you know, like right behind everything. I was like, oh, very, you know, that, that was very yeah. cool. And the canoe paddling guys. Right. With the, with the with the men on the outside and the women on the inside. Um, everyone clothed a little <laughs> too much, but yeah. <laughs> I want to know where they got that big, big dude that came out. I was like, I've never seen a Choctaw look like that. Well, you ain't been to Oklahoma, I guess. Ain't been, ain't been I Oklahoma. guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, he was, <laughs> he was he was the Cherokee because I called him out of the, the hut back there. Hobu was his name. And uh, he was our he was like our ringer. So we were we got down, we got behind and now we call him in. We're taking over and score point after point after point, And it comes down to the game point. And that's that's when she kind of steps on their back and jumps jumps through the goal. And then we have a a, a famous cameo in that scene, Dwayne. 
I know they um they took my my lip point out because one I got real <laughs> dramatic and gave that oh. lip point. That was maybe like Emmy Award win in there, but but that got cut. Dang. <laughs> there was I mean Tatanka is in that scene. I thought I saw him. Yeah. 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 And, and plays, his name yeah. is his name is Tully. His name is Tully. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> so did you work with uh, Curtis Billy during that, Dwayne? We didn't, no. Um, language was on set. Uh, historic preservation was on set. Um, because some of the, uh, besides being dubbed in Choctaw and some of the translation, there was, there was Choctaw spoken in while filming. And they... Um, they were on set to kind of make sure everything was accurate, period accurate. And uh, so to eliminate some of the stuff that's going to come back later and say, oh, they didn't pronounce that right or that's that's not true. So we're talking about episode two and, and that was the opening scene of the, uh, the stickball scene. But then we get more into Maya's story and it, the rest of the episode really focuses on her relationship with her family. Um, you know, she made sure that her cousin Biscuits didn't tell anybody or she told him not to tell anybody she was there, but then everybody found out, which is very, um, it's a well, rep good representation of how quickly news travels amongst the, uh, the Indian people in town, especially in a small town. Yeah, she shows up at the rollaway rink or the skating rink. So, of course, everybody's going to see her. Everybody goes to this skate rink. And Tamaha is a small town too. I think it's what, like 200 or 300 people in it or something? Yeah, um, I'm not even sure Tamaha has a post office anymore, but it's uh, up near Stigler, Oklahoma. Does it look anything like what they showed to us? No, not at all. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no. <laughs> they don't even have a dollar store. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because... Well, Cody Lightning, I thought was really funny as Biscuits. He had me cracking up. He was, you know, good comic relief. But the the one part that I think that really cracked me up the most is when after uh, he and Maya go on their excursion with the train, uh, he drives by his grandma or his pokney and uh, the truck is messed up. And he's just got this scared look on his face driving by her, knowing that she sees him and I don't know. Just the look on his face. Cody Lightning is just a really, really good facial actor in, in this series. And I really enjoyed his performance. I love that scene. I mean, it's just totally played for laughs. Yeah. Especially. It, it was the timing part was great. And, and like I'm Muskogee Creek, but Muskogee Creek, you know, people, um, they have a, some similar customs to the Choctaw people. And one of the things that we always said is you do not make grandma mad. And that's what that reminded me. I was like, don't you make grandma mad. She will beat you. <laughs> yeah. And the other half of that is like that we see Tantu, right, as the character. And already, and so she's so well cast and clearly established as somebody who is not going to take uh, any guff from any character. And the fact that she is the one that's uh, <laughs> on the other end of this really heightens the. Uh, potential stakes at that particular moment and then makes it even funnier uh, we don't actually see her all that often in that many humorous moments I, I think in this series we don't see her in that many humorous moments but in her filmography we don't either um, but that was a really great moment in like her response and the anticipation of what's going to happen is 
is great. Yeah, and uh, she has a really, really important part um, when it comes to the relationship with uh, Chapa and uh, Lowak because it's established in episode two. Uh, Scully, played by Graham Greene, informs Maya that um, Tula or Tantuk can trace her roots back to Chapa, and that that establishes that connection as to why we're seeing these pe- these women of the past and, and seeing their strength and their trials that they have to go through. Yeah, and it seems to be setting up something in these first two episodes, right? right. Starting with history and then uh, the repeated imagery that we see with the hands in relation to the spiral. Um, but yeah, it seems like those things are building up um, a relationship between not just history, but women specifically in history and probably a lineage right um right. i would imagine the the other episodes are probably I'm, I'm anticipating that they would have the same structural elements so that's interesting element of just like the long form but also like uh connecting women and across time i do feel like we're missing i know that i mean i don't know how many episodes this was supposed to be but it seems like the the jungle gym play set seems to be being set up for something and i mean having watched the whole thing i'm i'm kind of like i didn't ever see a big payoff from that yeah that's what i wondered too because even when they showed uh, maya and bonnie as children they were in a tent they were never playing on the on the swing set right yeah so yeah. i i didn't know really know what the significance of that was there, yeah. there is a kind of a practical thing that i saw in that when maya returns to town um, and she arrives on her bike at night and the light shines in the direction of the swing set. Um, we see very clearly those two yellow hanging rings. And then when we cut back uh, to her memory, we cut to a shot that allows us to see the tent in relation to those yellow rings. They're still yellow, which is crazy after so much time, like 20 years or whatever, they're yellow in the present, quote unquote present uh, but I think for me, it felt like it was a practical way to let me know that the tent used to be there. Um, because other than that, I I only kind of kind of conceptually knew that they were in the same space. But you're right. I feel like there are there's an element there that's literally dangling. We we don't ever come back um, to those rings. We kind of don't come back to that space in relation to the tent and to Bonnie. I was actually kind of expecting a moment where. Uh, Bonnie and Maya um, have a similar maybe blocking or they're in similar circumstances whether it's in this episode or you know the future but uh, that does feel like it's something that's like left uh, open and um, yeah Angela's bringing up an interesting point the fact that we kind of know as an audience that there are five episodes here and at one point there probably were more episodes at one point I think there was like eight yeah, I get a I get a some sense of that from things that seem to be set up here, like the vehicle that is being driven. Yeah, this episode, um, Biscuits is driving that truck that is the grandmother's truck, um, but the driving wheel is on the right side of the vehicle, and it feels like that's never explained why that's the case. She was a oh. it was a yeah, postal a... that's service vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's on the side of the truck. Yeah. It seems like that's kind of implied, but it feels like 
there's an element there about her story in relation to mail and messaging. And obviously there's a duplication there with like the, the wood pecker. Uh, but it feels like those things kind of, yeah, those things are not, maybe not given enough time to clarify some of those links or those um, symbolisms. And so I didn't catch some of that stuff until the second time I watched it. Yeah. Um, and it feels yeah, like. Yeah, that's kind of what I feel because I feel like sometimes the Marvel episodes go a little too long that a lot of times it feel like they're filling in space to make up for the nine episodes or 12 episodes that they have. Where And then I got pissed off because this was five episodes. And then I was like, well, maybe they tightened it up and made it made it good. But I felt like now it was like I needed more stuff because I really felt like the character interactions weren't like Bonnie and Maya, Maya don't have much time together in the series. And they're the main focus, it seemed like. But it was always just everyone else talking about it. But we don't get to see that develop, that relationship develop and reasons why they were BFFs and reason why they were sisters and reasons why they fell apart, reasons why, you know, what happens when they get together and then they leave again and then they get together in the final episode. You know, I wanted to see more of that happening. Yeah. And, and you know, there's one critical element here for me to be invested in a series is knowing what characters want if they had their way. So e even though we kind of we kind of know that Bonnie and Maya had a relationship, and maybe we can put the pieces together that like because Maya split, she's in doing this like dangerous work that Bonnie in her relationship didn't develop. But I'm I'm not quite sure what Bonnie wants out of the relationship with Maya, or what Maya wants with a relationship without Bonnie. You know, like clearly she wants to kind of keep her work and her personal life separated, but I'm never clear as to why that's the case. I don't know if she thinks Bonnie's going to get in trouble or if she's trying to hide all this information from Bonnie um, or if she feels ashamed. And then if all this stuff is is um, rectified somehow, does she want to, you know, be hanging out with Bonnie anymore? Or does she really just want to clear the space and like move separate ways? I feel like. All those things are not given enough time for me to really understand the potential of what the characters want. And when the dangers arise, I feel like the threat is not as clear in relation to what the character outcomes are going to be. And I feel like a lot of that has to do with like compressing these episodes from eight or whatever into these five. And the setup here, it's like there's there's so much plot you have to set up, especially in relation to Hawkeye it felt like it was taking away from the set of those characters. I didn't talk about it earlier, but that's what threw me off in that first half of the episode one. Is I got confused of where we were in time and space because um, we were picking up right where Hawkeye left off. And so it threw me off as I was thinking about it. I'd rather see the development of Bonnie and Maya in that half, that first 30 minutes, as opposed to doing a recap because it's too long for a recap normally they're like two you know two to ten minutes i know amc usually does like their own separate press release kit kind of where they talk about what happened in the previous seasons and what you're going to expect and all the excitement in the new seasons you know i'd rather have seen that as a separate video because i had rewatched hawkeye and then the way they recapped it it didn't really develop anything it didn't develop her and kingpin's story it didn't really right. develop bonnie or her with anybody it just said this is what happened and then would come back where she shot and 
asking and so i'm like <laughs> how'd she get shot i don't remember her getting yeah, shot. yeah that was my question how'd she get shot yeah. five months later yeah it's interesting i was actually much more confused about things that i thought i was clear about in hawkeye once this went through the whole montage i was confused about the same thing what time the cause and effect like what's happening and where was i um this is an interesting kind of like element that it seems to be like happening right now with Marvel. This is a step away from like just the indigenous stuff, but you know, it seems like this is what's happening with like the Ms. Marvel's movie. They kind of had an in movie recap. And then um, I feel like maybe the, there's another film that came out. Um, I feel like, I don't know if it's Dr. Strange. Aquaman kind of did it too, I think. Uh, well, Aquaman, yeah. Aquaman did it as well, but like within the Marvel universe, it feels like they're they're trying to test the waters because it's been like over 20 years since like Iron Man came out. And they, I, it seemed like there's also a period where we took a break because of the pandemic, because they're naturally taking a break from Endgame. And we're now in maybe a generation that hasn't seen everything. And, and like this whole style of telling a story with a cliffhanger and then just jumping right in seems like it might not be working and it feels like this last year marvel's been testing out how do we throw in information from the past so that people can catch up uh, for new viewers or whatever and it feels like this is somewhat of a test because it hasn't most of the other series haven't done this before um even a hawkeye which is a continuation it feels like it it integrated it a little bit more interestingly well, this is the first one that's being um advertised as a spotlight series where they're they're kind of telling everyone you don't have to watch well it, it, you, you kind of do but it's not tied into like the, the bigger the, the bigger um the multiverse uh, story that they're telling it plays out more like kind of a limited series i mean it is a limited series but like like an actual like comic limited series like a four issue or a six issue limited series where they kind of take a character character takes a break away from the, kind of a larger storyline and i think the only other series that kind of does that is moon knight but it seems like everything else is like really tied into like three or four other things this is tied into one thing yeah and the werewolf movie oh yeah 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 werewolf by night yeah yeah which that worked really well and it could have done it with this where it could have just been a whole separate storyline it didn't have to deal with kingpin and all that, that stuff yeah it would have been just as fine yeah. you know she we got we could have saw what, how she got shot what she could have done was like mess with gangsters got shot had to find a safe place to, to rest before you know these are like your basic storylines of other stories of where you know they go and she has to hide out and the only place she can go where she doesn't want to go but it's most safe is back home and so she goes back home and then hilarity ensues the gangsters show up things go bad she has to save the town blah 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 i mean those are like your basics of those kind of storylines and then if we're doing like the recap the, the best one i heard is where louise from ant-man should do the recap at the beginning of each show of what happened previously. And so that would be so funny. I would I would love to see that where he would just say, so before you watch this show, here's what happened. And then he said, and then she said. Anyway, so like the, the recap did confuse people. I think the fact that they maybe streamlined some of the, at least these episodes, we're starting to sense that there's information that might be missing. I felt one place that was really critical for like the second episode and maybe the entire series is that um, the villain that's introduced in episode two, this Zane character, it feels like he's kind of set up in a in a way where the train blows up, like that cargo of D9X blows up, and we find out that blows up on his watch in 
what I take to be New York, even though the skyline kind of looks like Toronto or something or Atlanta. But the implication is that he's in another city and that now he's going to go after whoever did this to him. But I, I feel like I don't, I'm unclear uh, kind of what, what he wants or like how dangerous he is. And like, if he's like, you know, maybe we don't need to know if he's like the top guy or a middle guy, but I feel like if I knew something about how threatening he was um, and then maybe a little bit about like what his plans were with the cargo. This is how I interpreted it. So she found out which car was coming in that had, which, I mean, how did she do that now that I think about it? Yeah, I don't know. And then that's when she planted the explosive device on it so that it would explode when they opened it at the location, wherever that was. I mean, just just the fact that there are multiple interpretations right here and we're all kind of unclear to me is a sign that like the the expediting of these episodes is not making the plot cohere. Um, and in addition to that, like character motivations are also somewhat unclear. Echo. What is her main goal in the series? Yeah, that's a big question. What is the main goal? I feel like in the second episode, when she's talking to Chaske, um, she mentions about how there's a new, like the king's gone, right? She thinks that Kingpin is dead. Now it's time right. for a queen's reign. A queen, right? Yeah. So it seems like she wants some sort of sense of authority. But also, it seems like she's going after um, this individual. And I'm not clear if she is enacting revenge or if she's just trying to take control over territory or like, I, I don't know what Kingpin is in control of. That's clear. But maybe his reign over an organization or land or relationships, like that's somewhat unclear to me. But it feels like she's... It seems like the implication is that she wants to be in control of something that Kingpin was in control of. I'm not clear what that something is. I'm actually not clear if that's really what she wants. Um, or if she's also bent on vengeance, which it seems like the implication of like the title song about like, what are you going to do with the fire? And the fact that low walk means fire. And the fact that like, there's some vengeance that's implicated by the death of a father figure. It feels like those things might be motivating her to do something, but I'm also unclear if those are how 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 much those two goals are the same, if they're separate, if one grows into the other. Um, and I feel like all those things are really important to know if if she's also like leaning into a, a vengeful Indian trope, you know, like this to some degree is a Western where we have a a character returning to a small Western town uh, bent on revenge and the fact that she's also steeping in anger. And that seems to be implied as a motivating factor for her decision-making. All those things sort of like move into the territory of Billy Jack, which why Billy Jack makes sense to me as the dog name, but it's also kind of like, you know, in this area of like a trope of an angry Indian that is unmanageable and like, you know, um, full of rage and going to take it out on non-natives. And uh, that is somewhat, you know, verging on savagery as like a Western movie trope. 
but and I'm not to say that you can't have native characters that enact vengeance in movies, especially against those that have been uh, wronged in a genre movie. But if they're going to go into these areas, I think it's very clear or should be more clarified why a character is doing these things so that we understand why it might be grounded in some sort of reality and not just like a genre trope. And I feel like right now, because it's not clear, it could it could be mistaken for enacting problematic depictions. So what were, you know, in 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 these, uh, what do you call it, modern screenwriting methods, what are the A, B, and C stories of this show? Based on the first two episodes, A would be her taking over the queendom. Taking over the kingdom, becoming a queen. Seems to be on surface. B would be reconnecting with her community. And C would be eating Pop-Tarts. <laughs> it definitely it definitely feels like B is related to Bonnie. Somehow Bonnie is yeah. like, there's yeah. something needs to be rectified with Bonnie. It feels like that's mm -hmm. the B. B for Bonnie. But there's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. B. There's not enough B. No. Bonnie or, or B. Yeah, and there's not enough yeah. B. And I guess the C line really is related to the grandmother somehow. Yeah, that's what I think. Right. I would say. Oh, yeah. But honestly, this grandmother, there's a stronger storyline with her than there's with Bonnie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's got a past relationship with Grand Green, which, by the way, pretty cool to see them reunited after so much time. Right on. I love <laughs> that. That was pretty cool. I know. So good. Yeah. But the fact that they are separated, seems like that mirrors the Bonnie-Maya relationship somewhat, but that they were had a relationship in the past when we like see the father and the mother and they're all around the fire while Bonnie and Maya are in the tent doing their shadow puppetry. And then we move forward and then we find out that Graham Greene and Tantu's characters are no longer in a relationship. In fact, they seem to be estranged and so much that like the, it's only like a business where they can interact and transact. And it feels like it feels like I want them to interact with each other more and i feel like i've got enough time with them to know that that's kind of maybe something that they want maybe i do think somewhat part of this is you know like the episode one we spend so much time on that on that recap that like the setup of some of these things could have taken more time and it would have been a better experience um and then the second episode we go into like basically an action set piece of this train Heist, basically what seems like a train heist and then the setup of like i guess her her message to zane and it, it's sort of a a play on the audience that it's not stealing but she's placing something there it, it reminded me a little bit of that um train episode of the mandalorian which a lot of people talked about and it, and it felt like that was a really well executed episode that was just one single episode. You don't have to watch anything else. From the first yeah. season? I think it's the second season. The second season? Yeah. But this one, I kept... Actually, it might have been in Boba Fett. Yeah, maybe it was in Boba Fett. I think maybe you're right. So season three, I guess, or Book of Boba Fett. Yeah. But uh, I was comparing them both because they're you know both about like making your way through a train. And they're both, you know, like that's another Western genre a little bit, like the train 
uh, taking control of the train and getting something and then the train blowing up or whatever like that's directly from like the great train robbery but that was something that i was expecting and, and um i felt like she was really great in the stunt work i felt like the train was really great it's interesting that like it's also a year of a lot of trains this last year's like indiana jones had a train sequence and then there was like a another train sequence so it's like comparing all of these um and the, the car and the jump like those were cool and giving me a sense of who maya was but i uh, on a technical level i felt like the train sequence should have been suspenseful and I felt like I was never concerned about her safety or I was never concerned that she was going to get caught or I was not quite concerned that she was going to achieve what she was after. I was always confident that she was going to achieve and she was never in danger. And I thought like on one hand, that's cool that I have belief in this like indigenous character so much that I believe that nothing's going to get in her way. Even when she got her leg grabbed, yeah, yeah. But even, but but you know, beyond that, like just like maybe on a a storytelling level, because I didn't sense any danger, I was not engaged on the edge of my seat. Like, is she going to make it? Um, and I felt like there was some level of suspense that could have been massaged a little bit more. Is she going to make the jump? Is that guy going to turn around and look at her sooner? Is she going to fall? Um, yeah. is something gonna you know come from around the corner that she doesn't expect? I feel like those things are naturally in these other examples, <laughs> and we're not happening in this episode. And I I feel like I feel like the footage has it. I feel like it's maybe the directing happened, but it's like somewhere in the cutting. And again, it's I feel like it's a a cutting circumstance, just like maybe the other examples of like missing story where it's like the cutting somehow took the suspense out of this episode in other movies she'd have to fight somebody there would be someone that would would catch her and she would have to fight them and throw them off the side or right. you know that kind of thing right and also speaking of trains sydney freeland directed a movie called deidre and laney rob a train so i don't know if that was a <laughs> is that intentional or not that's interesting i've never seen that did you know anything about that can you talk yeah, about it's on what netflix. that is it's on netflix yeah, yeah. It's not really like a, it's, you know, it's not, there's no, I don't know if there's any natives in it. I can't remember, but it's a comedy, two young girls who decide they're going to rob a train. I think their mom gets thrown in jail. I saw it back when it first released. And I think their mom goes to jail and they try to get bail money. And they decide to rob a train to get the bail money. I could be crazy and be totally wrong on that. No, I think you're right. I mean, like this is, this is the IMDB synopsis. After their mother ends up in jail, two sisters turn to train robbery in order to support their family. Yeah, so two teenage girls. So um, I think that was the film after Drunk Town's Finest. Drunk Town's Finest, yeah. Which is a really good movie. We should talk about that at some point. That is a great film, yeah. So, Dwayne, you got any input and thoughts on the, the episodes one and two that uh, you thought about when you were watching them? Like you're saying, some, some parts were left out, but I think, um, and a lot of these writers um, and everything worked on Res Dogs and and stuff like that so it's coming from a native perspective so some of the stuff is i would just say insinuated like um like you're saying you know what happened well we know that she shot kingpin so of course there's going to be other people mad at her <laughs> out to get her stuff like that and it could have went into more detail but also if it leaves it it leaves it open-ended so you can kind of imagine 
well, oh, they were chasing her and she had to hightail it out of town to get back to safety, um, something like that. But, I mean, you can look deeper into it and, you know, her being with Kingpin after her father died and kind of brainwashed, you know, she she comes back to her hometown thinking that her family um, disowned her, doesn't like her, doesn't want to see her, all that stuff. And then it's, uh, you know, kind of that graze the line between hero and villain. That's what I was thinking about when I was watching about the Kingpin and her relationship, where he was kind of like raising her to be that way, if that makes any sense. Grooming her? Grooming. Grooming, yeah. Grooming narrative. And that also could say something about colonialism, too, about how you're my family. This is my people. You are not a part of that culture anymore you're with me now and you do what I do and say, and you are part of my life, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that you're bringing up colonialism because there's clearly like a implication of colonialism. The fact that he's a king pin and she wants to become a queen pin. She's sort of like believing in that system of dominance and maybe even like the strategy that comes from that. And that I assume, like if I pretend like I haven't seen the other episodes, my assumption is she's going to like learn another way that contrasts these like approaches to control and dominance. Um, if this is sort of like also a non-conformist or anti-colonial message for her character growth. Do these two episodes feel like they fall in line with who Echo has been in the comics at least? I mean, yeah, yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Any final thoughts? My final thoughts so far yeah, there's some plot holes, but I loved it. Everybody on my feed, all the Native women have been loving it. It's awesome. I love that there's a blue healer in it. That's my puppy. You never see blue healers uh, in movies because I think I don't think they're very well behaved and <laughs> can be in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> of course you know being Choctaw you know I love that you know we have a Choctaw character who's a badass kicking ass who is just like this amazing character and I even loved her when she was in the Marvel comics when she was Cheyenne and she was introduced in Daredevil so that's why I felt they had the Daredevil cameo it was... I'll say that it is pretty amazing that we've got another film that is tribally specific or like series I think that's really amazing. And the fact that we're we're talking about all these elements of accuracy and that there's like intertribalism, right? The fact that we've got stickball between two different tribes, that's pretty amazing. Um, and the fact that we're also kind of um, seeing these different perspectives of different tribal members and uh, different generations and we're we're seeing these different attitudes and walks of life. And then seeing the kind of cast members that we are getting used to now, I feel like all the, that is great. Um, I mean, yeah, they could have, they could have kept her in, they could have stayed in New York, they could have stayed in that area, and and uh, they chose to take her home to Oklahoma. That was that's that's amazing that they creatively that they were allowed to do that because I can't think of I can't think of many Marvel pro most of the yeah like I can't remember if I said this most of the Marvel characters and movies and shows take place around the new york area it feels like yeah so i mean props to marvel for allowing um the characters to go in this direction 
which then further allows for like the kind of indigenous elements both in the story mm -hmm. and then of course like the people that are in the the scenes background casting and then like the materials that are being applied the props and the design it feels like uh, the fact that we're also hearing clearly from our interviews that there's a lot of work that going through consultancy to apply um, accuracy, language, imagery. That's 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 amazing. I'll just say again that um, the whole project is awesome. Just uh, representation in general, um, and you know myself working with kids. Uh, you can tell them about all the opportunities that are out there and what college they can go to or what trade school they can go to. But then when they actually see it's it's on Disney, it's not just a film that was shown at the community center or something. It's it's on Disney. It's it's streaming nationwide, uh, worldwide. So when they see something like that, that gives them uh, more incentive to learn more of their culture, more of their language, stuff like that, and um, gives them a better sense of identity because, and where I'm from in Oklahoma, kind of the northern, uh, near Fort Smith, Arkansas, but the northern part of the Choctaw Nation, um, culture is not that prevalent as it is in the south, uh, Duran, of course, being where headquarters is and everything, and in McCurtain County, where it's primarily Choctaws. So it gives them uh, where before maybe they were kind of uh, scared or ashamed because they didn't feel like they knew enough to to learn more. Uh, now it gives them that encouragement to go out and seek those people or um, it's it's hard to find for us to find um, fluent language speakers, especially after COVID. So to have somebody come in and just conversational Choctaw with them or seeing it on the screen where they're having conversational Choctaw. Um, it just it just opens their eyes a little bit more and kind of motivates them. Yeah, I just want to piggyback off of what pretty much everybody has said. You know, yes, the story is imperfect and has plot holes. And you raise a lot of questions that I had myself because I remember asking, like, what is she doing on the train? What are we doing? I can't remember. What did she do? Did she succeed? Anyway, so, yeah, we have those plot holes like that but at the same time I'm still kind of freaking out a bit because we have Lily at the Golden Globes I'm I'm looking at my um my menu page and there's Killers of the Flower Moon and there's Echo on Disney Plus and so can we do better always we can do better we can push for more culturally and tribally specific things and it's starting to happen and I hope we can ride this wave of progression and just really you know really cool pushing that next horizon of native visual storytelling in film and media and this is an exciting time I'm I'm super excited at what's on my screen right now so yeah those are some of my final thoughts and um can't wait to talk more echo well I wanted really quickly it's nice to see Jana and Dallas married but that was pretty cute yeah oh, was that an episode two that little the res dogs reunion it was one of those other storylines that just kind of disappears <laughs> yeah feels like Jana had a storyline there about like yeah her boot. yeah we obviously needed more of that more of that obviously more yeah. auntie uncle energies more of that 
Yeah. More of that positive state of love. Yes. And and then pow- I think this is the first time I've ever seen like powwow prep in any movie. <laughs> yes, which if no one knows, takes a year to do. Especially if you got a big one. I am looking forward to what they do with the character. Um, she In the comics, she does become an Avenger and they do a lot of uh, she they do a lot of cool things with her when when and if they get to that in the uh, actual MCU so we will see when she also Ronan yeah at one point yeah and also Daredevil's love interest so I guess that wraps up our recap slash review of Echo episode one and two our next episode likely deal with episode three and four uh with that i just want to say thanks for listening uh thank you Dwayne, for joining us and offering your your input and your insights um we'll catch you next time same indigenous time same indigenous channel but also be sure to check us on our socials um on the facebook real indigenous podcast twitter at real underscore indigenous and um instagram real indigenous pod and uh, we have a Patreon, too. So please, there's uh, all sorts of great stuff on there that you should check out and uh, think about subscribing to. Sunrise is shaking his head no. I just want to, I don't want to have to keep buying discs. That's, that's the high level. Yeah, I'm prepping. I'm in prep. Yeah, you know that all discs are going to go away eventually. So Sunrise is going to be the last hold on. So when, when the uh dvd apocalypse happens we're all going to be going to sunrise to to save us from you know the streaming wars i was trying to help his wife out so i put in the thing you know that he would slowly be giving away from his collection to our patreon subscribers yeah no these are completely new i'm not giving this away it's only Uh, new bot material oh shit (laughs) see you hear that kids sunrise is new bought material not just used stuff not that junk that he's trying to throw out not something you find in the dollar bin this is brand new some of them's even those uh criterion discs all orders yeah i mean if if people want to subscribe and they want that criterion get on that patreon and see see if you can win that it's sort of like a raffle a little bit the level is he sends you a disc and then you can have a phone conversation with him about the movie which will be six Ooh. to seven hours and that, long. <laughs> and, and how I, much is that? Uh, how much is I that have level? No recollection <laughs> whatsoever. Ten bucks a month. <laughs> okay, okay. If you subscribe at the Spirit Guide level, which is fifty dollars a month, cheap. <laughs> You can have an unlimited, you can get a, you'll get a Blu-ray or DVD hand selected by Sunrise with the option to have a discussion with him about the tone, aesthetic, and bespoke nootropics of the film. I forgot about that. I, I have not. So I'm I'm getting ready. <laughs> gotta, gotta well, get through my criterions that I'm going to sell or give away. So, I mean, if you pay that $50, get in on this. Get your Criterion disc. Should should we thank our our, our sole should. Patreon subscriber? Yeah. Should we should we give a shout out? We are setting a precedent here, Matt Bars. Okay. I mean, if we thank this one, 
we have to be equitable and do them all, right? So I'm okay with that. I mean, we're at one. I, I'm a, I am too. I just we shouldn't forget. But then you either. have to. Yeah. You have to thank me and Telly. I thought. Did you not cancel yours? No, I can't. I forgot. I've been giving us. <laughs> I've been giving us five dollars a month for like three months now. That's what we're hoping. <laughs> Is that is that how we're going to afford a microphone? <laughs> but yes, we do want to thank our one Patreon member, our brand new Patreon member, Shanna Paddock. <laughs> Was that Great White North? We're so excited. All right, take us out. The longest outro in the history of outros. Um, with that being said, remember... Don't just keep it real. Keep it real. Indigenous. That wasn't bad. That wasn't too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it is great how that show really depicts real people <laughs> like Tully. Played by Tatanka means. It's like really showing me people in my life. Yeah, and Maya. there's a character named Maya. Exactly. And it was it was confusing. Oh yeah. Not my couch. Character. Yeah. I was gonna say something when he was talking uh, yeah. about the accents in Choctaw and how there's different I was like in I was about to say something like I can barely understand what Tully is saying half the time. I can barely understand myself. You haven't spent a lot of time in Southeast Oklahoma. All right. Good night. All right, thanks, Dwayne. Good night. All right, appreciate Thanks, it. Thank you. Thanks for what a trooper sticking around for... the whole two episodes. <laughs> I know for three He's hours. For three hours. <laughs> you don't want to leave. It's so much fun. <laughs> I think we're gonna get fifty dollars or something. <laughs> <laughs>